0: Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Policy Agendas podcast. I'm your host, the project manager of the Policy Agendas Project, E.J. Fagan. Today, I am joined by the local government expert, the person who has been to more city council meetings than Leslie Nope, Brooke Shannon.
1: Yay, that's me. Hi, everybody.
0: And I'm also joined by uh, a rare person uh, uh, with the Policy Agendas Project, studies not just public law, but also comparative politics, a Barranca.
2: Hi, thanks for having me today.
0: So we we just recorded a great episode with Perlow P.A. of the University of Oklahoma. We talked about his working paper, Cross-Cutting Legislation and the Impact of Committee Reform on the Pursuit of Black Interests in the House of Representatives. So, Brooke, can you tell us what's on the agenda for this paper? Can you describe this this working paper?
1: Yeah, so this paper and P.A.'s research agenda at large is really about sort of um, the effects of committees, multiple referrals of policy and policy packages, things like omnibus bills, from the Congressional Black Caucus in particular. And he really looks at that effect on cross-cutting legislation and the overall strategy of the CBC of the last 20 years or so. It's a great paper. All
0: right. So Abe, what of this discussion really stuck out to you? Like, what did you learn from the, the great call we just had?
2: So what it really added to my understanding of the CBC was... How its strategies have developed under uh, different Congresses in the past and how going forward they may hone their position within the Democratic Party as a mover on policy agendas and multidimensional policymaking is a big aspect of that.
0: Yeah. So the episode will follow. Uh, we'll go into it in a second. But first, I just want to say that uh, this is our third episode. If you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you enjoy what we do. If you do, please tell other people about it. Please share this on Twitter, on Facebook. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, send it out to your email list. Do whatever you can to help us promote this podcast because we're really proud of it. We're going to keep doing it at least through this semester. And if you know we get a good reaction, we'll keep doing it into perpetuity. Also, if you have any feedback for us or any guests that you think that we should interview, please email us at policyagendas at gmail.com. And with that, here is our interview with Perilou P.A. We are now joined by Perilou P.A. Uh, He's a graduate student at the University of Oklahoma. We are going to be discussing his paper, Cross-Cutting Legislation and the Impact of Committee Reform on the Pursuit of Black Interests in the House of Representatives. P.A., welcome to the podcast.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, guys.
0: Yeah, we, this is a this is a a, a fun paper. Um, it, it's uh, the first paper we've done. This is now our third episode uh, that really deals directly with the data that we produce the policy agendas projects. So we're, we're very excited. I always do a little fist pump when uh, when I hear about uh, people using our data. Uh, so I would just like you to begin. Just can you can you summarize the argument of the paper and what you find?
3: Yeah. So um, I originally looked at the uh, cross cutting legislation uh, that I define as legislation that, take, that gets referred to multiple committees uh, as uh, a driving question in my research. And it was inspired by uh, the Jobs and Justice Act that was proposed uh, this May or this past May uh, by the Congressional Black Caucus. And it you know, got me thinking, what happens when the CBC gets into the omnibus game or the, the minibus game and doesn't increase their chances of achieving their legislative goals? So what I what I found was when they do sponsor legislation that gets referred to multiple committees, they have a, a much better chance of clearing the committee stage and the uh, a vote on the House floor. So it does significantly increase the probability of that occurring. So uh, very very briefly, um, that's pretty much what I found. But then I dove a little bit deeper and I saw that as the, as the institution evolved over time, you start to see um, things that weren't significant that were in later Democratic majorities. So um, prior to the contract reform uh, of the Republican Congress in the 104th, there was no significant impact on sponsoring multiple legislation um, and multiple referrals uh, or legislation that would receive multiple referrals. Uh, but in the 110th and 111th, you did see those significant findings. So that, that I found that to be kind of interesting. So I wanted to dive a little bit deep into why that would actually take place.
0: Um, can you explain to our listeners what a multiple referral is uh, for a bill in the House or Senate?
3: Yeah, definitely. So a bill, once uh, once sponsored, gets categorized uh, through different procedures and sent out to different committees that would have jurisdiction over that particular legislation. Uh, prior to the 104th, uh, there was the, the possibility that a bill could be jointly referred. So two committees would have equal uh, jurisdiction over – a specific bill. Well, uh, in the contract with the American people, uh, the Gingrich Era Reforms, they did away with the joint referrals and went to more sequential referrals, where one committee would get priority, but if there were elements of the bill that uh, were in the jurisdiction of other committees, they would get referrals to address those specific areas. Um, They've had several different alterations to that from the 104th to the 110th. But uh, generally the process is now is that they, they can refer a bill to multiple committees uh, based on the elements or the, the, the issues that are tackled in a particular bill. So an omnibus bill could cover six to seven or more uh, different committees if you package it that way.
0: And why might a, a cross-cutting piece of legislation uh, have what, – what, can you explain your theory of why um, these will be more successful bills both in getting out of committee and on the floor?
3: Yeah, well, uh, it starts at the very core that the the more eyes that you get on a bill, you're able to garner more attention or more interest. Uh, you're able to get more diverse perspectives uh, into the bill. Uh, Barbara Sinclair uh, mentioned this in the latest version of Unorthodox Lawmaking. She says when there's a, when a bill is considered by a number of committees, multiple perspectives are brought uh, to bear on complex problems, and In the things that I study, uh, the black issues are about as complex as they can get um, for a number of reasons. But that allows you to, say, build coalitions around these bills to try to bring in or break down different barriers that might exist um, in trying to get your legislation past the committee stage or on the House floor. So uh, it's all rooted in uh, increasing attention, um, broadening the scope. Uh, of conflict, for example, for uh, like rooted in uh, Schatzniger's work and uh, Jones and Baumgartner's work, uh, all of that comes into play whenever you're sponsoring bills that can receive multiple uh, referrals.
0: And last but not least, before we get into specific questions, can you explain just the the empirical strategy you use? So, what data are you bringing to bear, and what are the big dependent independent variables you're using?
3: Right. So I. I take bills sponsored by Congressional Black Caucus members from the 103rd to the 112th Congress. Uh, it comes up to about uh, 4,326 bills, and about 1,500 of those I identify as bills that are sponsored in targeted policy areas. Um, and, I, and I identify those through looking at the expressed uh, CBC agenda that they publish uh annually on their website and in the congressional record. And my dependent variables in this case are the uh, dichotomous indicators that a bill can receive a report out of committee or uh, has passed a roll call vote and or, and, or Um, the independent variables that I look at are a dichotomous indicator that a bill has received multiple referrals and one that has uh, an additive uh, measure of the number or the count of committees that a bill has been referred to. And it happens that the uh, comparative agendas pro- uh, project uh, data set facilitates that rather well.
1: So getting back to the idea of, of multiple referrals and that process in Congress um, and its effect on cross-cutting uh, legislation, I'm wondering if this is a unique strategy um, in general, can you talk a little bit about the uniqueness of cross-cutting as a strategy and whether or not that is um, more like specific to the Congressional Black Caucus or if other groups in Congress abide by the same strategy?
3: Um, I'm not 100 percent sure if it's unique to the CBC. Mm-hmm. Um, I do propose that it is part of a strategy that is employed by the CBC as a way to kind of cut through barriers. and there there are other things that they do. and this is part of what motivated the um, the study itself. It's trying to lift the hood on some of the activities that uh, the Black Caucus as an organization does and and I think as research moves on, we're finding that these organizations are rather sophisticated in what what they're trying to do. It it doesn't appear that they were rather successful in that when you compare them to the House average. Uh, The proportion of bills that they sponsored that were referred to multiple committees was lagging behind all the way up to the hundredth and ninth Congress, but then you see a huge surge in the number of bills or the proportion of bills that they're able to sponsor that are getting to multiple committees. And I found it to be rather interesting. So that might signal a shift in tactics, it might signal um, just a different approach to lawmaking as the omnibus packages become more and more likely to cut through some of these barriers or more likely to garner attention. I'm seeing that increase as them changing their approach to how they're going to package these bills moving forward.
2: Do you take this as an indication that more multidimensional policy is more out of CBC appeal within Congress as a
3: whole than unidimensional policy? I would, I would believe so. Um, and the work of Glenn Krutz shows that people are willing to jump on board uh, of multi-dimensional policies if they, if it appeals to their particular policy interests. So, uh, like I said, this is an opportunity for them to build coalitions around these issues or break through some of these structural or interpersonal uh, barriers that exist in lawmaking and to, for the lack of a better word, make these policies a little bit more palatable to. Uh, their colleagues in the Democratic caucus or to the institution as a whole. Mm
2: -hmm. In terms of the barriers, um, and and you touch on these sort of theoretically um, more robustly in the winnowing paper, um, that this sort
0: of... To interrupt, Dave, so we'll have both papers for everybody in the uh, the description of this podcast. So we're talking about one of the working papers, um, but PA actually has a second working paper that's closely related to this one that we'll also have in there on the winnowing of bills.
2: Um, so one of, one of the factors, and, and you're welcome to speak to any of the six that you, you sort of uh, outline, was about abdication of the Congress um, being facilitated by other uh, branches of government. So the executive and bureaucratic um, initiative taking when it comes to um, minority-focused issues or interests that would uh, implicate the CBC. Um, I was wondering if you would just speak to that a little more because there seemed to be a lot of sort of theoretical um, – robustness
3: in that area. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that we found over the past year, specifically dealing with issues like voting rights or criminal justice, is that um, in previous administrations, they allowed the judiciary or the executive branch, the agencies, particularly the DOJ, uh, to take the lead in being the enforcers or the the, the litigators of black issues. Um, The... Department of Justice or the Civil Rights uh, Branch of the Department of Justice, for example, they were um, front and center in challenging voting rights. Um, and even as the Shelby decision became clear that that was going to be, you know, the 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 downfall or of a huge portion of the Voting Rights Act, um, the DOJ was still front and center. Now that's. That's slightly changed in the past uh, two years, um, so that might also increase uh, congressional responsiveness to the voting rights, and we'll see where that goes with a new uh, House majority. But um, we often wait, or co- Congress often waits for the judiciary branch or for these different agencies to take the lead, um, or even advocating their responsibility altogether and trying to come up with uh, policy solutions for these different problems that they have. And it, it it adds to the complexity of these issues.
1: Yeah. So also in the in the accompanying piece um, on winnowing, it said that or it's shown that institutionalized racism, it really accelerates the process of winnowing, especially for CBC members. Um, do you do you see the the strategy, I guess, of these big omnibus packages, the big bills sponsored, um, particularly on things like social policy. Is this a strategy that could backfire?
3: It it potentially could. But you're seeing increasingly uh, the CBC members um, kind of infiltrating the institution that has been uh, historically um, adverse to uh, increases of racial, uh, like racial gains uh, in terms of policy. So as members become more incorporated into the institution, that, itse- that in and of itself may provide opportunities for these policies to make it through, so when you see, uh, for example, a John Conyers or a Charlie Rangel as the uh, chairman of these major committees, they they're wielding the gavel, and you might be able to get it through those committees where prior in prior Congresses you may not have. And then with the omnibus packaging, uh, that allows you to get to these different uh, these different venues, with, that it provides a better opportunity for you to get uh, through the committee stage.
0: So I want to move on and talk a little bit about uh, your empirical findings and, and some um, empirical analysis here. The first is that you, so you are comparing for people who haven't read the paper um, all bills in Congress against bills on a defined set of subtopics based upon uh, the ten I believe task forces of the the, the, the Congressional Black Caucus maintains, right? Um, and then you've mapped the the subjects of those task forces onto those subtopics, correct? Um, why, why did you use this approach? Um, did you consider maybe using an alternate approach based upon the bills sponsored by members of the Congressional Black Caucus or
3: any other alternate approaches? So are we looking specifically in, on the winnowing paper or on I'm the— I'm looking
0: at the, um, uh, at the other paper, uh, Table 1 in the appendix, um, right. where you have the, the set of subtopics you've selected.
3: Right. So uh, in the cross-cutting legislation, those are bills that were sponsored specifically by Black Caucus members. Um, and I look at it broadly, um, as in all bills that were sponsored by them, as well as in those, uh, those policy topic uh, areas, those task force areas. And that, that gave me that data set of about 1500, uh, a little bit more than 1500 bills. So, uh, the reason why I chose to do it that way is because they, the black caucus, uh, publishes their, their agenda. And there are some very targeted policy areas, but there are also some references to uh, policy areas very broadly. And it, it it becomes a little bit complicated to um, directly tie one specific piece of legislation to um, uh, the policy areas that they speak about broadly, right? So if they talk about improving K-12 education, for example, um, that mops on pretty well to the policy subtopics provided by the Comparative Agendas Project, um, but if they if they talk about civil rights broadly, um, they it, it it may or may not uh, depending on which areas that they're focusing on in their bill sponsorship. So what I did was I I dove into the their the actual bills that they were sponsoring, looked at what topics matched their written um, expressed agenda, and then. Uh, it mapped on well to those policy uh, subtopic areas.
0: So, what you're showing is that the behavior of these bills differs from the behavior of other bills. I'm curious if you could, if you could, kind of run down how the what, what those differences are. So, what what's different about these issues versus the other issues presented before Congress?
3: Right. So, one thing that we notice when when talking about black issues, um, they are perceived to be more contentious um, than. Uh, other issues that aren't brought in front of Congress. Um, but you also do see a variety of different issues that the caucus identifies as part of their, um, their legislative agenda. And this might be, um, signaling that the caucus itself is evolving. And some, uh, a number of scholars have looked at how the evolution of the caucus has taken place over the past 20 to 30 years. Um, if you think about, uh, Cannon's work on the politics of, of difference or the politics of commonality, and that's been adopted or adapted um, by Andre Gillespie or Catherine Tate or, like, they, they've they've come to the realization that the Black Caucus isn't just concerned necessarily about Black issues, uh, but still at their core, those core issues that they're looking for are to improve the lives of the, the, the constituencies that they represent. So. Uh, they're likely complex. Two, they're 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 contentious, uh, oftentimes. So if you look at voting rights, um, there's a lot of uh, partisan contentiousness around the Voting Rights Act. Should we make it easier for Black and Brown people to vote, or should voting processes be as stringent as possible? That's a partisan battle that. Um, there's not a lot of middle ground to uh, when it comes to congressional activity. Um, also, if you look at things like how to reduce poverty uh, through through assistance, uh, through food assistance, through low-income housing, for example, um, these different tracks towards improving the lives of these minority constituents um, are often those that are more likely, um, as my first paper says, to be to not make it through a lot of the key checkpoints in the congressional process.
0: Is it because that they're more polarized issues or because um, even Democrats don't – who aren't in the CBC don't attend to those issues as much as the CBC members?
3: I think it's a combination of both. Um, uh, If you look at uh, democratic actions over the past couple of decades, uh, since the the caucus has become um, increasingly liberal uh, after uh, the polarization within the institution – Non-minority Democrats are still relatively hesitant to tackle these uh, racialized policy issues. And at the end of the day, it's not out of the ordinary to expect for black caucus members to try to tackle these issues on their own. Now, there are uh, increasingly a number of uh, liberal uh, uh, liberal lawmakers who are taking on these issues that are being more vocal in, uh, in taking on voting rights, for example, as an issue. Um, Taking on um, small business or I- I advancing these communities and education and things like that, but at the end of the day, um, these racialized policy areas are definitely uh, more contentious, and it's, it's it's likely not just a partisan thing. It's not just a a product of polarization. They're just a different beast altogether. And certain pol- certain uh, scholars have pointed to the the likelihood of, of voter backlash as reasons why they're not necessarily willing to tackle these issues.
2: Um, Your work uh, uh, obviously references and and seems to extend um, existing previous work that um, indicates there are maybe electoral benefits to sort of cross-cutting policymaking um, and and broad um, out of uh, uh, constituency, meaning uh, district constituency, um, policymaking and policy proposals by, um, uh, black legislators. Um, do you, so y- your work seems to uh, indicate there's institutional benefits in addition to e- electoral benefits and, and sort of public um, p- approval benefits. Um, can you just talk to sort of that dual benefit, um, uh, uh pitch that, that your work seems
3: to make? Yeah, definitely. Um, on, on one hand, uh, probably at its core, is the, these lawmakers are have, are bound to their constituency. They ha- they have an obligation to improve their situations through legislation. But at the same time, they have to they still have these motivations uh, that all lawmakers have the the uh, desire to uh, you know improve their positioning and gain power within within the legislation uh, the. Uh, desire to be able to take credit for accomplishing things, and and if these omnibus packages are a means to accomplish that, um, that um, I forward that they they can accomplish both um, through packaging legislation in, in a way that their constituents are being served and they're able to improve their position through through coalition building, through um, credit claiming, and all of these things that matter to lawmakers.
1: In terms of the um, issues that you see, congressional Black Caucus members sponsoring, do you see more of um, sort of appropriations bills versus like a substantive policy? And then more broadly defined, how do you how do you look to define um, Black interests?
3: One thing that I'm finding, and not just this work, in other works that um, their agendas uh, over the years are evolving. They are moving towards more uh, less contentious policy areas, um, but it's not as drastic as some would think. Uh, you would think that as we increase the number of progressives in the caucus, for example, or the, the med- median age declines, right, that there would be a generational or uh, ideological shift within the caucus. And you're seeing that somewhat. But uh, the old guard um, still, still has some um, some pull on the legislative agenda. You also see them becoming more cohesive around those core policy areas that people would would suggest they're moving away from. Um, you do find that they're still rather strong in their in their support and uh, within the group for some of those core policy issues that, that people would think that are contentious policy areas, like criminal justice reform, like civil rights and voting rights. Um, and a lot of that might be because increasingly those policy areas are becoming more under attack than they were in previous administrations. Um, but uh, these substantive policy areas are uh, essentially still at the core of the caucus and their agenda.
0: I'd like to move on to talk a little bit about the CBC as, a, as an organization generally, kind of just outside the paper. We'd like to pick your brain on this. We actually – we got into some great discussion over uh, – when we were preparing for the show uh, about the CBC. We are recording this in late November. And so the Democrats are currently holding their their leadership elections and the CBC is playing a very large role in that. And um, uh, and so when you listen to this in January, put yourself in that frame of mind. Um, my, my question my – the first question is, is the CBC um, – an party organization or rather is it primarily an intraparty organization or is it something different
3: the i think they're going through a phase where they're realizing uh, their potential to be a legislative uh, a an agenda shaping organization um, a lot of the literature leading up to the 110th 111th uh, congress painted them as a cohesive intraparty unit, right? Of a, a, a very reliable voting bloc that voted liberal, m- more, more likely than not, uh, and voted together. Um, I think after seeing the rise of the Freedom Caucus um, and other organizations that have been able to kind of mold the legislation um, or the out- legislative output of the House of Representatives, particularly, uh, they're seeing that they can they can wield more power. And I think that you're seeing that with uh, them leveraging certain policy, um, policies for leadership, for example, or um, trying to uh, accrue different committees, leadership spaces or sub subcommittee uh, leadership spots. Uh, we see with Hakeem Jeffries winning the Democratic caucus chairmanship. Um, the, these are they're occupying very pivotal roles within the Democratic caucus. Will that translate into a huge shift in the the party agenda? We're not yet to be seen, but they're situating themselves or positioning themselves in a way that they can achieve those legislative goals as um, like as the Freedom caucus did uh, during the Republican House majorities. Now, uh, are they going to take that same route where they use that voting block as leverage? I'm not sure. I don't know, uh, because this is a this is a different era of politics um, now. I don't than it was in 103rd, or for example, and almost different than it was in 110th and 111th. Uh, there's not a lot of room for uh, there's not a lot of middle ground when it comes to policy. So they may have to use it to get some policy wins, but to facilitate the Democratic majority as well.
0: Um, when we think about caucuses, you, normally the, the, the typical caucus is fairly loosely um, uh, crafted. You know, even something like the Freedom Caucus doesn't have a lot of full time staffers. You know, uh, exclusive to their caucus. But I, my impression is that the the CBC is, is a whole different uh, type of organization that's much better resourced and organized than pretty much any other caucus. To the point that it's it's something different. It's 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 bigger than than any of those other those other organizations.
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely. They they do have a sophisticated infrastructure with those task forces and those working groups that can uh, supplement or even compete against the the existing committee structure, for example. They also have these external um, non, non-profit institutes that conduct a lot of research to facilitate that information sharing or the information gathering on, on specific policy areas where the, the normal committee structure might fall short. And I think a lot of this is come out of the reform era of the Republican reign uh, in 104th, where they actually did away with the legislative service organizations. And they just have uh, a really good paper by uh, Andrew Clark that came out not too long ago that talks about how uh, doing away with LSOs uh, decreased the capacity of those uh, these groups or those members to legislate. So um, I think as Time has passed. They become well more sophisticated in their organizational structure, in their in their goals, uh, uh, in their agenda itself, to uh, facilitate a, a better uh, better achieving their legislative goals.
1: So, with the new class of House members, particularly the progressives, how do you see the CVC interacting with those folks um, and potentially forcing open a new window of opportunity for these types of policies?
3: So I, I I honestly see it as a, an opportunity for uh, the young member, or the new members. Not all of them are young. Um, the new members to step in and potentially take the reins from the old guard. Um, you know, we we have Maxine Waters, Elijah Cummings, uh, John Lewis. All of these are like front and center when it comes to the CBC actions, right? But the the new the new uh, cohort of members are, are far more vocal uh, in the early stages of their careers than uh, the, the old guard were in the 93rd or the 103rd, whenever they first got here. So it's it'll be interesting to see how they're able to shape uh, policies. And the first agenda that they put out, uh, potentially in January, will reflect, I believe— um, that evolution in the membership, yeah, I, I feel like you might actually get more progressive policies out of there and maybe even provide a more, op- an increasing opportunity for them to bridge that gap between the Democratic caucus and the CBC as a whole or with whatever moderate Republicans still exist within the House and uh, maybe some of those uh, fringe CBC policies, so secondary policy areas. Um.
2: So with this anticipated um, potential great, greater effectiveness and, and sort of uh, power realization, do you think there will be a continued sort of um, strategy of this multidimensional policymaking? Or do you think it'll be sort of more unidimensional as that sort of uh, strategic honing or, or, or power honing occurs?
3: Um, it. It, that's a, that's an interesting question. I I think it all depends on um, the actions on the from the broader Democratic caucus and in their dealings with uh, Nancy Pelosi um, and trying to reclaim some of that rank and file power. Um, I I'm not a hundred percent certain that the leadership is just going to be willing to give up uh, the the influence over the agenda over the broader agenda, but. I do see it as a tactic. But I don't see them going back to pre-reform uh, unilateral bill sponsorship or uh, unidimensional bill sponsorship. Uh, they saw that it worked in the 110th and 111th, even, even at a small scale. They, they saw that there was an improvement in their positioning when it comes to the success of their bills at the committee stage and at the floor level. So if they just take that at its face value. Um, I don't see any reason for them to go back to the old air, old ways. Um, I, these bills might actually look different moving forward, um, but I'm not 100% certain that they would move away from it, especially now considering that they don't have the, sen- the Senate. Um, they don't have um, a, a friendly president in the Oval Office. So they might move towards let's put out these omnibus bills and let them shoot it down. And then we can use that on the campaign trail, for example, you know, that I I can see that sort of tactic.
0: So last, last real question. Um, uh, In this election, a a large number of the new, um, uh, new black freshman class uh, are representing uh, non majority minority districts. In fact, some of them are representing quite, quite uh, white districts. How will this change the CBC?
3: Um, I think that's part of the evolution of the caucus that's been um, taking place over the past 20 years. These districts are changing, uh, rather through gentrification or through uh, draw, redrawing uh, count district lines. Uh, these districts don't look the same, uh, even through just mobility uh, of, of people moving into new areas. Um, these districts don't look the same that they did in the 80s and 90s. So this is part of the reason why you're seeing these progressive politics or these these, um, non-racialized policy pursuits. Um, And Andrew Gillespie has a a great book on Cory Booker that talks about how uh, these policies are changing. Um, You're seeing these policies actually take the shape of more compromising or less contentious policy proposals coming out of the Black Caucus, and I think that you'll see an increase of that. But that also provides an an opportunity for uh, them to actually build on these omnibus packages by saying, hey, let's also take care of all of these things that matter to everybody, and that might actually increase the likelihood of them uh, garnering support from those uh, white liberal members of Congress.
0: PA this is this has been great are you presenting any of this work at the Southern Political Science Association conference which will occur about a week after this episode goes up
3: yeah, actually, I will be presenting the cross-cutting legislation paper um, on Friday, I believe, at Southern. So I, I look forward to anybody that would like to attend and shoot me some questions if you have any.
0: All right. And uh, uh, last but not least, we always ask our guests, or, or your, as our third guest, we are asking our guests uh, for a reading recommendation. So what what uh, piece of work that you've read recently, a recent piece of political science, do you think we should go out and read?
3: Um, if, since we're talking about the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, concordance? by Catherine tate is a 2014 piece that um that i've taken a look at over the the past couple of months and that actually shows that evolution of the caucus playing out from the reagan era to now basically um and how the membership has changed how their goals have changed uh, and so on and so forth um so, let's see, what's another? The Andre Gillespie book that I read was was really fascinating because that also shows at an individual level how um, these motivations are different than previous black lawmakers that might have been uh, raised in the civil rights era, for example, like a John Lewis or somebody like that, um, or Maxine Waters, for example. So those are a couple of books that I, I would, if you want to look at where the black caucus or black lawmakers are now, I would definitely take a look at that.
0: PA, thank you for joining us. This has been great. Um, Everybody, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with an interview to be announced.
3: I appreciate it, guys. Y'all have a good one.